you would please turn in your Bibles once again to the book of First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, where we, we will read verses 1 through 11. First Peter 4, 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the living God. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Wherein they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent love among yourselves. For love shall cover a multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. That God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God, we pray that you would bless now the reading of your word and the preaching of it. Lord, prepare our hearts even now to receive your word. Help us to be good soil. The seed of the gospel. God, hide this preacher behind the cross that we might hear the voice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we ask these things. Amen. This morning we return to these verses and we continue to understand how a Christian is to live in this world amidst suffering and particularly, especially suffering for the cause of Christ. We're reminded again from these verses that we have lived long enough in the service of sin. We have looked at these verses more in depth over the past few weeks. We know as we read this text that Peter's original audience, as well as every person who has read since, had lived lives before they came to Christ. And we have it before us, lives of sexual sin, drunkenness, orgies. I mean, that's listed here in the text. I can't help but think if, if Peter had this audience gathered in a room like an in-person meeting that he would be looking out at a bunch of sinners. And then that brought me to think about our 
meeting, our gathering, and it should not escape our notice that when we look around this room, what do we see? A bunch of sinners. Christians, we, we hear people say, put your sin behind you and forget about it. I think there is a sense in which we should put our sin behind it. Confess it and and press on toward the mark of the high calling. There is a sense in which we do that. But brothers and sisters, I hope you never, ever forget where you were. I hope you never forget that you have received the grace of God. That we are sinners, but we are sinners saved by grace. So we have no room to look at another sinner with prideful condescension. Jesus came to save sinners and every Christian has this thing in common. We're sinners. We're sinners saved by grace. And Peter is reminding us in this text, reminding them and us that Christians are not to live that old way any longer. He puts us in verse 7, he puts in our mind the end of all things. The end of all things is near. The end of all things is at hand. And we looked at that last week. And, and we should ask when we see the end of all things is at hand, now what? Now, as, as I say that, I'm hoping some of you younger people will take that down. Just now what? There's a lot of things, a lot of trouble in this life that you'll get out of if you ask what next? You know, like now what? If, if you just ask that question, think one step ahead, you'll get out of a lot of trouble. Well, Christians, we need to come to this and we need to say, hey, the end of all things is near. Now what? What's next? How, how do we live in light of the fact of Christ's suffering and the end of all things, the end of this age? And last time we saw in verse 7, the word therefore, and that begins to answer the question for us. Now what? Well, therefore, how do we live? And we saw last time, be sober and watch unto prayer. But as we work through this, we see, we see, be sober, watch unto prayer, show love, practice hospitality. We have this, we have this now what, how then shall we live laid out for us in verses 7 through 11? And we need to pay attention. This is, this is a list. When we come to lists in Scripture, we need to pay attention to those lists. But, but here, this list is not like every other list. This list comes on the heels of another list from verse 3. So there's a connection between these two lists. The, the list in verse 3 is a list of sinful Gentile behavior. And the list in our text today is a list of righteous behavior of Christians. So Christian conduct then is to replace our, our old sinful conduct. How do we live? We'll live no longer that way, live this way. So if we just we work through list in verse three and the list in verses 7 through 11, we, we come to this. Instead of lust and sexual sin, which is selfish and destructive, now we are to be loving people 
sacrificing ourselves for others. Instead of drunkenness and carousing, we are to live lives of sobriety, sober in mind. Not, not only sober in relation to alcohol and drunkenness, but also sobriety in mind in general. Instead of focusing our eyes and our hearts on temporal pleasures, that's how we used to live, now we are to focus our hearts and our minds, now we are to keep watchful unto prayer. We used to get together with with everybody we knew and hung out with for drinking parties and orgies. Now, Christians, we are to show hospitality. The old way of life was selfish. The new way of life is sacrificing. Rather than abusing people, abusing alcohol, abusing relationships, now we are to serve people. We are to love one another. Our homes now are to be a place of rest and refuge for those who are weary and worn. So we see this answer in light of Christ's suffering and in light of the soon coming end of all things, how are we to live? And last week we considered soberness and watching unto prayer. Now we'll continue to consider this lifestyle, this, this behavior of a Christian. But before we dive in, I want to point out some things. If we look at this Christian behavior, it's not like it's not like sinful behavior. Sinful behavior is isolating, more and more isolating. But this Christian behavior that we see before us must be done in community. This is not a list of the conduct of a Lone Ranger Christian. And even as I use the term Lone Ranger Christian, we need to understand the Bible knows nothing of a Lone Ranger Christian. This, this, this lifestyle that we are to live is not alone. What well, we're to serve and, and serving requires that there are others whom we are serving. We are to love. Love involves others. We must be hospitable. Have you ever heard of solo hospitality? There's, there's no such thing. This involves community. So we, we read these verses and we work through this uh, reading as active members in a healthy local New Testament church. That's how we should see this. Verse 8 tells us, Above all things, keep fervent in your love. The King James says, Charity for one another. For love covers a multitude of sins. Above all. Above all, these words above all marks out love as preeminent. And we know we just had read in our presence what remains is faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Love is the one characteristic that is so common to disciples of Christ that we might be identified by it. You will know them by their love. Love is not only how we should live. 
Love is a reflection of God himself. Scripture tells us God is love. Love is a reflection of God himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Love is inherent with the person, with, with the being of God. And John 3.16 teaches us that, that love is inherent. Some people believe that, that Jesus died in order that God would love us. Well, you hear that and you think, well, that sounds good. It might sound good for a minute, but that's not what John 3.16 tells us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. God's love was the motivation for the action of sending his son. Jesus came to die for us because God loved. When we keep strong love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are, we are reflecting the love of our Heavenly Father. And we are living as Christians should live in this world of suffering. Now, now I want to say something here. It's not in my notes. I'm just going to insert it. I'm just going to add it right here. It's just free. As we work through this, I want you to notice how much one another, one another, one to another, one another, one another. How much is in this text of one another? Brothers, sisters, brethren. This is this is loving one another. Now, I am not saying that you don't love your neighbor, that you don't love your family, that you don't love your enemy, that you don't right. The scripture instructs us in all those things. But this and and most of what the scripture teaches us about love as Christians is demonstrated one to another. It's It's a one another thing. This is how we are to live. Also consider this last phrase of verse eight. Love covers multitude of sin. There was a little boy that said, I thought that was a lie. I thought a lie covered a multitude of sin. (laughs) No, a lie just multiplies sin. Love covers the multitude of sin. That also was not in my notes. I should stop saying things that aren't in my notes. (laughs) What, What does it mean when we read in the scripture, love covers a multitude of sin? Does it mean that love overlooks or ignores or passes by sin? God forbid. That is not, that is not what we should read here. Scripture is very clear. No sin is overlooked. No sin goes unpunished. Friend, either your sin was punished and paid for in Christ on Calvary, or it will be punished and paid for eternally in hell. God does not overlook sin. No sin goes unpunished. And we cannot either. Love covers a multitude of sin does not mean that we overlook sin. But we also, Christians, loving one another, we don't offer additional condemnation. God's judgment for sin is sufficient. And we who are recipients of his forgiveness, recipients of his saving love, we dare not stand looking down our nose at another sinner. 
We don't ignore sin. We don't condone sin. We call sin what God calls sin. We even call one another to repent. But Christians, sometimes, sometimes Christians can be mean. Sometimes Christians can add offense. And how do we do this? We do this by either requiring more than God requires. You sinned against me and against God, and God required that you repent. And possibly make recompense. But I will hold it over your head for the rest of your life. I will never forget. Sometimes we do that, right? That's not Christian behavior. That's not love. Sometimes we, sometimes we behave poorly by adding to God's requirements, adding to God's law. Well, God said this, but I say let's raise the standard. Some of us think we can raise God's standard. And in doing this, we are not loving one another. Love covers a multitude of sin. Christians, we who have our sins forgiven, we whose sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, that fact should cause us to be gracious and forgiving when we are offended. It should cause us not to seek to be offended. The love of Jesus Christ toward us should ignite a burning love for others. Beloved, keep fervent in your love one for another. Love covers a multitude of sins. Secondly, we read in verse 9, use hospitality one to another, there it is again, one to another without grudging. Now, I wanted to address that without grudging part. I think this is the easy part to understand. So we, we'll do it first. We'll get the easy thing out of the way. Without complaining, without grumbling, without grudging. With, with, hospitality is inconvenient. Can we just put that out there? Can we just say hospitality is sometimes inconvenient and we are to do it without complaining i think that's pretty clear but what may not be as clear to us is what hospitality is you know sometimes we we hear a word and we think we know what it means and we don't and maybe this is one of those some of us have the idea that we that we think we know what hospitality is but what what is hospitality is hospitality throwing a party is hospitality inviting people over? Is hospitality the same thing as entertaining? What are you doing Friday night? Well, we're entertaining. Or we're showing hospitality. Sometimes we use those things interchangeably. But they're not interchangeable. There are different motivations behind entertaining and throwing a party. Entertaining does not address a need or a concern. Entertaining is just fun. Throwing a party is just fun. It's, it's possible to invite people to a party or invite people to your home and do that selfishly. It's possible to have people over selfishly. Maybe she makes the best cucumber sandwiches. 
So you invite her over selfishly because you want one of those cucumber sandwiches. Maybe he'll bring the karaoke machine. We didn't really want to invite him, but you know he has the karaoke machine. It's possible to invite people to your home, to invite people to a party, to entertain and do so selfishly. But hospitality has a different motive. Now we can understand hospitality better when we recognize that it is closely related to the word hospital. It's closely related. Then we begin to understand the motive. We, we see that the hospital is there to bring healing and to help and to meet a need. And what is hospitality? It is to bring help and to meet a need. Sometimes to bring healing. To help a hurt. There are many times when Christians gather and there's no hospitality taking place. Hurting guests come and then go without any help, without any healing, without any need being met. Entertainment happened, but hospitality did not. So we need to understand that hospitality is meeting a need. We also, we also think of hospitality and we think, well, hospitality is having people over to my home. And it's true that, that hospitality can include having people over to your home, but that's not always the case. There can be hospitality without having people over to your home. This hospitality that is spoken of here can be in a conversation. It can be in a word of encouragement, praying with someone, expressions of love. As a matter of fact, we see in verse 8 that we are to love, fervently love one another. And then in verse 9, how are we to love one another? Well, one way is through hospitality and expressing that love through hospitality. Hospitality may be done through an email, through a text, through a, through a card being sent with a, with a note written inside. Hospitality could be taking a meal to someone somehow meeting a need that they have. Now, understand, how are we going to know what need they have? How are we going to know how they're hurting? Well, this requires, believers, that we are part of one another's lives. How can, how can I know that my brother is hurting? How can I know that my sister has an unmet need? We need to be part of one another's lives. And remember that the hospitality that we show one to another truly is service. Not only service to one another, but it's service to God. Remember the text of Scripture. Lord, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in? When did you, we see you naked and we clothed you? When, when did we see you thirsty and offer you drink? As much as you have done it to the least of these brethren... You have done it unto me. As we love one another and show hospitality one to another, we are truly serving God. Fervent love, hospitality. Thirdly, Christians, we are instructed in verse 10. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
Now we could spend the entire time this morning on this gift verse. There are many gifts that we have received from the benevolent hand of God. Some gifts that God has given, we can uh, you, you hold in your hand right now. Uh, Ephesians tells us that God has given us gifts like apostles and prophets and evangelists. And you might say, well, we don't have any of those. The apostles and prophets and evangelists, they're gone. Well, look in your Bible and you will see the apostles and prophets and evangelists. You'll see that we hold in our hand that gift that God has given the church. Uh, there are other gifts that God has given the church. Uh, pastors is a gift mentioned in Ephesians 4. So if you need a visual about what gifts God has given you, just picture Pastor Brent and I and you'll, you'll have that. <laughs> you'll, you'll have that in your mind. If you have been to some churches like, like the churches that I grew up in, uh, you've probably seen gift, spiritual gift assessments. God has given gifts and, and you should, uh, you should buy this book so that you'll know your spiritual gift. And some of you, I, I can see the grin on some of your faces. We've been through those things once, twice, so many times. Uh, and, and I want to point out today that I think there's a danger in, in those, uh, in those materials and those, I think there's a danger, especially how it was, how it was presented as I was growing up. My, my church friends all knew their spiritual gift and they all knew the spiritual gift of one another. We had to because those labels served for us as an excuse for poor behavior. If you are generally a rude person, you could say, well, I have the gift of prophecy. And I'm low on the mercy scale. And then all of a sudden, oh, okay. That's your spirit. I, it's not your fault that you're rude. It, it must be God's fault. If you don't want to engage in deep Bible study, you could just say, well, I have the gift of service. So I don't have to know stuff. That, that's the kind of wrong thinking that I grew up with about spiritual gifts. I think there are, there are problems here. Some of that thinking really pigeonholes every Christian into a what am I rather than a what should I be. Because I have the gift of exhortation. Does that mean I don't have to show mercy? Because I am a mercy. That's how we said it. Oh, I'm a mercy. Because I am a mercy. Does that mean I don't have to speak words of encouragement? And often that's how we think about it. Well, this is my spiritual gift. This is the only thing I am to do. When I think Christians should understand where God has gifted us. But those places are more natural and maybe easier for us. But if I am low on the mercy scale, that points out for me an area of improvement. Somewhere that I need to work on. I know it would be easier for someone else, but does it mean I don't have a responsibility? I can't say, well, that's not my spiritual gift. Find somebody else. I need to grow in some of these things. Also, spiritual 
Understanding our spiritual gifts is never a reason for us to impose our spiritual gift on the church. Sometimes Christians think, well, this is my gift and I should be allowed to use my gift at my discretion in the church. Like it or lump it. This is what I do. Uh, but that's that's the wrong attitude. Your your spiritual gift, your spiritual gift should be and and maybe is obvious to those around you when you are serving the church and serving God through serving the church. Others should be able to see that in certain areas you have strengths. Your gifts will be known. And as your church has need then you may be called upon. Then you may have opportunity to exercise your spiritual gift in meeting those needs. But it's not to come in and say, this is my gift. This is what I do. And impose that on the church. As you have received gifts from God, they are not weapons. They're not tools for torment. They are to be used. And this verse points out for us that our gifts are to be used to minister to the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I use the term, they're to be used to minister to the church of Jesus Christ. That's the word that King James uses, minister. And I think we must rightly distinguish here between the act of ministering and the office of minister or pastor. We, we have to distinguish that. Um, there's something that I think can be dangerous. I think you can teach that every member of a church should minister, but often we understand that to erase the line between the minister and the church member. I think we have to be careful that with that. The, the New American Standard and the English Standard, I think, better communicate here when they don't use the word minister to one another, but they say use your gifts for one another and they employ your gifts in service to one another. Continuing, verse 11, finally, if any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as, uh, let him do it of the ability which God giveth. Again, we have to understand this word minister. Those who minister with their words, uh, as opposed to those who minister are ministers of the word. As we understand the office of a pastor, the one who preaches the word, this statement certainly applies when a preacher preaches, when a preacher speaks, he should speak as though he is speaking the word of God because he should be speaking the word of God. Preachers speak the oracles of God. Calvin said, when a man climbs into the pulpit, it is so that God may speak to us by the mouth of that man. Earlier, Luther said, every honest preacher's mouth is the mouth of Christ. And the words spoken by every honest pastor are not his own, but the words of Christ. That's heavy. And, and it reminds us of the statement that we've heard so often from the Helvetic Confession. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. And you've heard me say it so often. You better not come here to hear my opinions, my thoughts, my words. 
we come here to hear the word of God. As we understand the function of preaching the word, every believer should long to sit under the preaching of the word of God. We should long to be there. This should determine what church we attend. I remember, and you'll remember this too, brother. We had, we had a man walk in years ago now and ask at the front door, will I need my Bible? I've visited, and I don't remember how many churches, and I haven't needed my Bible yet. Will I need my Bible here? It should determine. Understanding what the preaching of the Word of God is should determine where we attend church. And it should determine what we require of those men who hold the office of pastor in the churches where we attend. Church, you are the pillar and support of the truth. I'm so thankful that I feel the pressure when I say, man, this is a hard verse. I'd like to skip it. Nope. Somebody's going to say something. Man, I'd like to just jump over this whole. Nope. Somebody's going to say, I thank you that I feel that pressure. We've got to address the word of God and we've got to address it rightly. There are too many in our day content to have church growth by minimizing, decentralizing the preaching of the word. Brothers and sisters, we must demand of our pastors that they are faithful expositors of scripture, that they truly deliver the word of God. And when we find ourselves looking for a new church where we have to move or what for whatever reason, we need to find a church where the preaching of the word is the main thing. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says on the subject of preaching. When travels keep me from St. Andrews on Sunday, I seek a church where the word is preached. I am starved for the word of God. I want to go to a church where the scriptures are expounded. Our minds are informed and our souls are set aflame by the power of the word of God. It, it kind of shocked me to read R.C. Sproul saying, I'm starved for the word. Do you think that means he doesn't ever hear good preaching? I think it means there's such an appetite for the word that it is a constant feeling of I'm starved for the word. That's, that's what I think he's communicating there. And I don't know about you. I want that more and more and more. I want to be hungry for the word. I want us all to be hungry for the word of God. So, so this verse speaks about speaking the word of God and then ministering or serving one another. And, and we could think and we could make application to pastors and to deacons as servants. But, but I think we do need to think of this more broadly in our speech. I, I think we all speak and we all minister. We talk and we serve and, and Every one of us, our words are important. There's, there's so much power in the words that we speak. The old adage is true. The pen is mightier than the sword. Words are powerful. James 3 says this, Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth, and so they obey us, and we turn their whole body, small bit in a big horse, 
He continues, Behold, also the ships, which though they be so large and are driven by force winds, yet they are turned about with a very small rudder, wherever the pilot directs. Even so, the tongue is a very small part of the body and boasteth great things. Behold how great a forest is set ablaze with such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature. And it sets on fire of hell. James speaks about the misuse of the tongue, the, the sinful use of the tongue and the sin and destruction that can come from misuse of speech. But our text, in our, in our text, Peter speaks of the same member of the body, the same tongue, but in a positive way. As much destruction as can come from the sinful use of the tongue, so much good can come when we speak and we speak rightly. I want to move to the to this end, to this purpose statement that we find at the end of our text. It's, it's not only at the end of our text, but it shows us the end of what he's talking about. In other words, the aim, the goal. All of our lives are for a purpose, and here's the purpose. The reason for every Christian life, but also the reason for every person's life, the point of all creation, the glory of God. The glory of God. That God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now we say things like, let's give God glory. And, and, and we know, right? We know we're not giving God anything. We're not giving God. When we say give God, and I'm not going to fuss at you for saying that. We're still going to use that terminology. But we need to understand what we mean when we say, let's give God glory. What are we saying? All glory is His. Now let's ascribe to Him what is rightly His. We add nothing to Him. But we ascribe unto Him what is His. We must serve Him by serving one another, living sober lives, keeping an eye unto prayer, loving one another, showing hospitality, and in all these things we glorify God through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd apply these words to our hearts. God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction of how we are to live in light of Christ's suffering and sacrifice on Calvary and in light of his soon return. Help us to keep these things in the forefront of our minds. And God, give us strength. Give us courage to live lives that reflect your character, that reflect that we are Recipients of your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.